All right, today um, I delayed teaching this for like two weeks in addition to the normal week of prep I would I would have because I struggled with this topic. But what we're going to deal with is really the number one word of faith verse, at least in my opinion. Others will probably disagree, which is fine. And the ultimate question I want to ask is how correct are the people who teach kind of that word of faith uh, theology? And I recognize this too, that within the whole word of faith camp, there's different sub camps and all that. I'm talking about the stuff that we, we who aren't in the camp, we tend to see promoted online. That's what I'm sort of responding to. And here's the verse though. This is the passage. Read it and, and listen. Don't just read it. Think, how do I with integrity not affirm what Kenneth Copeland is saying when, when he uses passages like this? That's a kind of a tough question, actually. So listen in. And we're going to get into all kinds of details. It's going to be a long and thoughtful and thorough study with insights from history as well as, more important than anything else, the context of Scripture to guide us. At any rate, here is Mark 11, verse 21, where Peter sees the fig tree that Jesus has cursed and it's withered. And then he says to Jesus, Rabbi, look, the fig tree you have cursed has withered. And Jesus answered, saying to them, have faith in God. Truly, I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and cast into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says is going to happen, it will be granted to him, granted him. And then, and then this verse, which actually we should pay more attention to because it's even a more broad thing than what was in verse 23. He says, therefore, I say to you, all things for which you pray and ask, believe that you have received them and they will be granted you. Whenever you stand praying, forgive if you have anything against anyone so that your father who's in heaven will also forgive you your transgressions. But if you do not forgive, neither will your father who's in heaven forgive your transgressions. Now, <clears throat> this, this text, um, to be completely honest, as I, as I do the Mark series, um, I've been dealing with prosperity preaching a number of times and sort of that, that you know, camp of the word of faith that I'm familiar with from being online. And I want to beat it up. <laughs> like I'm just full disclosure, right? I want to refute it. But I sense an awareness in myself being someone who loves the word of God and who I've seen so many people stumble when they when they use scripture with an agenda already in their mind. I want to refute this teaching. How can I in this scripture refute that teaching? And so I was worried like that I was going to be skewed in my own understanding of the Bible that my interpretation of this passage would be messed up because I had a commitment to what I didn't want it to say. And so here was the solution. And this is always the solution. This is what you should do as well. I decided to sidebar the debate to say, let me put, you know, Kenneth Copeland over here and let me do a thoughtful, careful verse by verse study of, of Mark, this passage, the context of it and the rest of Mark, as well as, you know, historical, you know, insights, which I will share with you guys. I want to understand Mark in its context because the gospel of Mark isn't dealing with prosperity preaching directly. Okay, it's not dealing with Kenneth Copeland, he didn't exist. It's dealing with what's going on at the time. And if I can understand what it's saying to the, the original audience, then I can understand how to apply it and how not to apply it today. And that is where the beauty is. That is where the treasure is. So I've spent a lot of hours on this. I think for every minute, I mean, it's going to be a long study, but for every minute you hear me teach, I've probably studied for at least half an hour. <laughs> I'm not exaggerating. And um, the my point here is, I just want you to know, like, this is a valuable teaching on the topic, not because of me at all, but because of the information you're about to receive, it's valuable, it's important, it's helpful. And it's not stuff that's easy to find because most people just don't spend that much time on the passage, right? They offer some comments and then they move on. So this is this is Mark's teaching on prayer, this passage. And 
we're going to we're going to isolate our anachronism. We're not going to read back our current debates into the text. We're just going to look at the passage. We're not going to spin it. We're just going to let it happen. And um, I will mention one book that helped, which oh, I do have here, <clears throat> written by um, Sherrod Dowd. I'd read several things. I read a guy's dissertation on this on this one passage, which wasn't helpful. <laughs> Took a long time though. Uh, this was a helpful book. Sharon Dowd's book, P Prayer, Power, and the Problem of Suffering. It, very insightful. It's, it, this is a scholarly book, right? So it's got untranslated Greek, untranslated German. And the German, you can just kind of work around. And the Greek, it, it'll, you, there'll be a couple passages where you're like, yeah, I'm not really sure what she's saying there. But there's still some valuable insights. Although she writes like a scholar, and it, you will find it annoying. I, I'm telling you, you will. <laughs> but there's great insights there. And, uh, and I'm going to share them with you, so I guess you don't have to get her book. At any rate, sorry, sorry, sharing doubt, <laughs> no offense. Um, at any rate, <clears throat> here's, here's the bottom line. I'm really excited about what we're about to learn about the power of prayer. And it doesn't water down the beautiful, wonderful, powerful promise of Jesus of access to miraculous working of God through us just believing and praying. But it also doesn't water down how faith, while faith is, is key in, in seeing miracles, it's also key in dealing with suffering. And that is where you get the bookends that bring this, this whole teaching around and it becomes fruitful and helpful and edifying and encouraging. And it has a community of Christians who are you know, trusting for God's supernatural power in response to prayer and trusting God's goodness and sovereignty and will when he says no. And so here we go. This is the Mark series, part 43. We're dealing with Mark chapter 11, verses 21 through 25. <clears throat> Deep dive Bible study stuff here. If you're interested, the whole playlist for the whole Mark series, if you want to follow along, um, it's in the video description right now. You could go click there and check it out. And this is this is deep stuff. you know. And this is my channel. It's for people who want to go deep, right? You don't want the 30-second answer. You want all the data, but the relevant data and not just rambling. So here we go. Mark chapter 11, verse 21 through 25. We're going to read these verses one more time. And then we're going to dig into it, understand it in context, compare it to the rest of Mark, look at the rest of the New Testament, look at some ancient historical stuff, and then get our conclusion. Which is that Kenneth Copeland is wrong, by the way. <laughs> Coincidentally, he's totally, completely wrong. But we want to make sure we're biblical, not just anti-Kenneth Copeland. All right, Mark 11, verse 21, Peter says to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree which you've cursed is withered. And Jesus answered, saying to them, and he turns the fig tree of withering into a lesson on prayer. Have faith in God. Truly, I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and cast into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says is going to happen, it will be granted him. Therefore, I say to you, all things for which you pray and ask, notice all things, all things for which you pray and ask, believe that you have received them and they will be granted to you. Whenever you stand praying, forgive. If you have anything, where did I go there? If you have anything against anyone so that your father who is in heaven will also forgive you your transgressions. But if you do not forgive, neither will your father in heaven, who is in heaven, forgive your transgressions. Um, if I remember, I'm going to come back to verse 26 and why there's brackets around it and all that kind of stuff. If I forget today, because it's a long study, I will address this next week in the Mark series because I think it, it matters. It's just such a side issue compared to what we're talking about. At any rate, <clears throat> um, here's, here's some things to notice. Jesus takes the cursing of the fig tree, which is related to the temple. We'll talk about that in a minute. But he uses this as a general teaching on prayer. 
Um, there are those who want to isolate what Jesus is saying about the mountain as if it only applies to the temple. I'm going to give you like six reasons why I don't think you can do that. And that would be like, for instance, uh, Jeff Durbin, uh, from who I love Jeff Durbin. He's, he's, a, he's a, a, my brother in Christ, and he's got a lot of really great content and some stuff I don't agree with. But in this case, I, I watched his teaching on this topic. And I think that he got it wrong, right? And so I'm going to give like six reasons why that's the case. And he represents a whole bunch of people who have that kind of perspective. Um, but here's how the word of faith people will use it, right? I, I don't want to limit it to just being about the temple, but the word of faith people, what they'll tend to do, at least the kind of Copeland style people, they'll act like this is like the whole story on prayer. And they'll have complicated ways of doing this. So I don't want to oversimplify. But they'll say something along the lines of... Um, <clears throat> You know, God's will is assumed. We assume God's will agrees with you. And then all you have to do is be confident and believe this thing. And they won't usually say you can you can spend it on your pleasures. Okay, they won't usually say that. But when it comes to things like um, suffering, physical pain, or you have marriage problems, or you've got um, job issues going on, and usually it's always in those spheres, right? It's like physical health, wealth, and relationship, and business. Like th these are the things that they're always going to apply it to. And... You just have to believe God, believe that God's giving you the things. And of course he will, because God's will is just assumed. And suffering then, it, what's implied is that suffering that you go through, especially health-wise, especially if you're sick, especially if you're ill, it's, it's a lack of faith on your part, or it's some sort of spiritual battle that you're going through, or you're being attacked, and you need to pray and just have more faith. And then it might be related to sin in your life. But, but those are the only issues. It's never because it's God's will, okay? That's how they tend to use it. So that so that Jesus, when he says anything you ask for believing, it's pretty much a blank check for prosperity, at least in some sense. Maybe not super rich prosperity, but at least some measure of prosperity. That's what it ends up being about. <clears throat> Let me talk about some uh, possible approaches. Um, well, here's, here's my approach. First, we're going to deal with Mark 11. We're going to look at this stuff in context. Then we're going to expand out to the rest of the gospel of Mark. And we'll see, especially Mark 14, there is a needed um, counterpoint, a passage that is meant to provide the needed um, response to this bold teaching on prayer. And we're going to get there in Mark 14. And then we're going to also expand into other areas of the New Testament. Let's talk, though, about this passage in Mark. How do people interpret it? Um, there are those who I, I mentioned, like uh, Jeff Durbin, who would say that... Um, the this mountain, the concept of it being this mountain, you can say to this mountain be moved and cast into the sea, that it's that it's about the temple specifically. It's just about the Jerusalem temple. And there okay, there is a case that can be made for this. Let me offer that some of those points. Uh, contextually, Jesus is actually predicting the destruction of the temple in Mark 11 and Mark 12, 13. This is very much about the temple. This whole section of scripture is about the, it, the Jews, how they reject Jesus and the destruction of the temple that comes as a result. So contextually, the temple is very much part of the topic that's that's flowing through the passage. Also, the temple is on a mountain, right? Like the temple mount, it's, it's on a, a mountain. Okay, well, that also helps us suggest that maybe this temple refers to that. <clears throat> so therefore, Jesus, and, and I'm going to offer here, um, and the reason why I'm using Jeff Durbin is because he's one of the few who offered a clear interpretation as opposed to a lot of people who just kind of whim wham their way past the passage which is sad um no he offered like an actual clear interpretation you could actually unpack and look at <clears throat> but he basically said what jesus is offering is the idea that that god is going to destroy the temple in jerusalem 
um, as a result of the Jews having rejected Jesus. And then the church is being told that they can have imprecatory prayers or prayers <clears throat> for the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem and that God will answer it. So it's not about prayer being answered in general. It's about one specific prayer being answered. That is, God, destroy the temple. And um, this strikes some of us as being a bit odd. Now, I, I'm not against God's judgment or God's wrath. I think God's wrath is good and appropriate and proper. But I, I think that this has, and I'll just give you, here's my six reasons why I think that this particular interpretation doesn't work. Uh, first one, and this is, again, these are this is not a fully convincing reason, but it's interesting. The, the phrase is the temple will be taken and thrown into the sea. Into the sea. Now, when Jesus does later in Mark 13, 2, talk about the destruction of the temple, he talks about it in more specific terms, and he doesn't continue to use this just thrown into the sea terminology. Now, if if later on in Mark 13, 2, when Jesus talks about the destruction of the temple, he says it'll be thrown into the sea, and he, maybe he meant it metaphorically or something, then I would say there's definitely a connection. But here in verse 2, it says, do you see these great buildings? Not one stone will be left upon another, which will not be torn down. And so he's predicting the destruction of the temple, which quite literally was fulfilled in, in very specific detail. This, the, the stones themselves are gone. All that's left of the ancient temple is is one of the walls that was part of the uh, the structure the temple was built on, not even the temple itself. There's, there isn't a stone left on top of another. There's a pile of stones down by the western wall that maybe one of them was originally from the temple. At any rate, I don't think that connects to being thrown in the sea. I think that, that concept of being thrown in the sea sounds more like a generic thing and not specifically just about the temple. Here's another reason. In verse 24, in Mark eleven twenty four, Jesus applies, and this, is, this one's a strong reason, he implies that what's really going on here with this prayer promise isn't just about one issue, but it's a general truth about prayer. Therefore, I say to you, all things, all things for which you pray and ask, believe that you have received them and they will be granted to you. And so this is a general truth about prayer. This isn't about one particular prayer getting answered. So I don't want to limit the power of um, God responding to my prayers when they're offered in faith and say it was just about one thing. Now, the reason why some might go down this road is because they are cessationists, I think. At least is my thought on it. A cessationist, they believe that the gifts of the Spirit have largely ceased in the church. Not entirely. and It's complicated, right? But basically... We're not going to be seeing those kinds of miracles very often or at all, depending. And so, you know, a general promise about the power of God answering prayer miraculously on a seemingly regular basis is going to be something we're going to need to explain a different way. But I'm not a cessationist. And so, um, so yeah, that's my second reason. The third reason why this interpretation doesn't work is that Paul's use of the phrase moving mountains, it doesn't fit the idea that it was just about the temple. Right? So Paul the Apostle, now keep this in mind, Paul the Apostle in the first century, like this, he has understanding of what Jesus taught that is not only probably from the Gospels, but also from his encounters with the people who heard Jesus themselves. So he knows things about what Jesus said, and he's referring to something Jesus said in 1 Corinthians 13 too. He says, and look how he uses the mountain moving phrase. It's not about the temple, it's just about generic, miraculous things. If I have the gift of prophecy and know all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. So Paul uses the term removing mountains as a generic term for amazing acts where I trust God and, and God does amazing things. Okay, so it doesn't fit Paul's use of Jesus' saying here. Paul's probably referring to Jesus. 
and he seems to apply it generally. It's kind of a promise that God can just do amazing things as we believe. All right, let's look at another reason. The Gospel of Matthew has a parallel passage. And this is, and, and it's interesting how I, the video is, is, you know, the title is that it's about Kenneth Copeland. But the first part here, I'm actually just refuting the opposite side, <laughs> the cessationist side. And then I'm going to deal with uh, that side el elsewhere. But my point here is, I, I, at least, you know, guys like Jeff Durbin, those guys, they're trying to go to the text. They're trying to go to the first century to try to get a contextual understanding of the passage. And that's why I, I like and respect that view even if I think the conclusion's incorrect. So Matthew 21 shows Jesus repeating this same kind of concept, but again, it's generic. It's not just about the temple. So seeing this, the disciples were amazed and asked, how did the fig tree wither all at once? And Jesus answered and said, truly I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, you will not only do what was done to the fig tree, but even if you say to this mountain, be taken up and cast into the sea, it will happen. And all things you ask in prayer, believing you will receive. So if you're going to say the fig tree is about the temple and then the mountain's about the temple and everything's about the temple, then why is there an either or? Why is it you can not only do this, you can even do that. But if they're symbolic of the same thing, well, they're not. That's the problem. And Jesus applies it. All things, again, it's a general application. All things you ask in prayer, believing you will receive. And I will deal with the idea later and it'll be towards the end. Am I supposed to just make myself believe things that I don't think I really believe and, and, and just try to force myself to believe? Is that what God wants me to do? And if he does, then I want to do it. But I have a different theory, and I think it's supported by Scripture. So we'll come to that later. All right, let me give you another reason why I don't go with the, the more cessationist-style interpretation. That's Luke 17, verse 6, where Jesus has a similar statement, about, not about a mountain now, but about a mulberry tree. And this implies that this is just something Jesus taught on a regular basis. It wasn't just about the temple. The Lord said, if you had faith like a mustard seed, you would say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and be planted in the sea and it would obey you. Okay, well, I mean, I mean, it's everything's only about the temple. This just seems to be about prayer in general. The context in Luke 17, I don't think is telling us that it's about the temple. In fact, there's no temple context in Luke 17. It's a general truth about prayer. You pray believing and God will do it. How do I then interpret that rightly, put it in its context in the Bible, and apply it correctly into my life where it doesn't just create anxiety and weird false expectations? And I think we can answer that question with scripture. Finally, there are some Old Testament passages about moving mountains or uprooting them. And in those passages, um, it represents general powerful acts. It's not specifically about the Temple Mount. And so an example is Job 9 verses 5 through 6 and Psalm 46 verse 2. I'll give you those for your further personal research. But you'll see it, it's not just about the Temple. That's my whole point here. It's not just about the Temple. You can't limit, you can't take the promise and limit it to only being about the Temple. But can I take the promise and expand it out so that it is about everything? And, and, the, and the only issue is me believing. My, my belief is the only issue, and then I will have miraculous prayers answered uh, with a yes. And I think that that is also a mistake. We'll come to there as we, as we journey through the text. So what is the connection with the temple? I am acknowledging there is a connection with the temple. It's just not limited to the temple. That's my whole case. Yes, Mark 11 through uh, 10 through, well, I guess 11 through 13, you know, really major emphasis on the temple. But so it's connected. It's just not the whole story because he broadens it out to be a general truth about prayer. So here's the point of, the, of what we got so far, Mark. There are humanly impossible acts. And that's what's meant by mountain moving. Even in the Jewish 
uh, Talmud, and, and this is content in this particular stuff in the Talmud is written long after the time of Jesus. They would use the term mountain moving to refer to sometimes a rabbi who was uh, really good at oratory, that when he spoke, he could move mountains um, because he was just so good at, at like explaining the Bible, explaining the Old Testament. Um, but there, but it's now that's used, but it's also used of just doing amazing, miraculous feats. But it is, here's the point though, mountain moving is generally a euphemism for the naturally impossible or things that were, are feats that would be super hard or impossible for humans to do. And that's the thing. It's not like God's like, you're going to just tell that mountain to move and it's going to move. Well, the mountain's an illustration of what's humanly impossible. That's the point. That's the right understanding of the passage. God's the one who does the impossible. And this is consistent in the Gospel of Mark in general, right? So Jesus heals the paralytic. That's impossible, and Jesus does it. Jesus heals the blind. That's only God can heal the blind, and he does it. And this is kind of a big deal in, in the first century context, that he heals a blind man in particular. In Mark uh, 10, 25 through 27, he says that it's impossible for a rich man to get saved. Right? It's humanly impossible. But with God, all things are possible. That's the whole idea, is that there's things we can't do that God can do. And the teaching in Mark 11 is you can access those things through prayer by believing. Prayer accesses the power of God. You need faith. You must believe. That's what God wants on your part. And part of this is beautiful because it means that prayer is relational. We think of faith as being like a, a work we have to perform. I have to believe. I have to just make myself believe. But when we think of faith as a personal trust in God and his power and his goodness, you realize prayer is all about relationship. And that is where we should spin our wheels and not on some of the stuff we see from other places. <laughs> so um, so prayer is all about faith. Salvation itself is also all about faith. And and this is actually a never, nobody ever teaches on this. <laughs> well, maybe somebody does, but I don't know about, the, about them. So Galatians 3.5, it shows that not only is salvation by faith, but prayer and miracles come by faith. And now this is, take, let's take it outside of the word of faith context for a second. Let's put it in its New Testament context. Where the emphasis on something coming by faith means you don't earn it. That's the emphasis. It's not about how perfectly convinced you are. It's, it's about you not earning it. So here, Galatians 3, 5. Does he who provides you with the spirit and works miracles among you do it by the works of the law or by, the, or by hearing with faith? You just believe. So miracles, God doing wonderful, powerful things in your life, healing you of your sickness, um, doing, you know, answering prayer and moving mountains, so to speak, these things come by you just believing. And the emphasis on believing is you didn't work for it. You didn't earn it. You didn't do anything. And on this, I want to draw out some important things. Faith is weak. We often think faith is strong. Faith is powerful. Faith is this, this big giant deal of, of, that you're doing. But actually, I think in scripture, the emphasis is kind of the opposite. The emphasis is that your faith is weak. That's why Jesus is like, faith the size of a mustard seed, you could say to the mulberry tree, be removed and cast into the sea. Why, why does he make your faith so small? Because you just need to know that your faith is not you earning it. It's not you stirring it up. You're not pulling up some kind of supernatural power within you. You're just trusting God. It's just... Faith is weak. Faith is you doing nothing except believing God and God doing everything. And that's how miracles are accessed. That's the teaching here. You just believe. But there's so much more. We need to consider um, the, the temple context in the Gospel of Mark. So in Mark's Gospel, the this is key. Look, 
Um, I think a lot of my viewers, you get excited by understanding rightly the word of God and in its right proper context. But there are those, you're so used to short, quick answers that a long, thoughtful, careful study is annoying because it requires too much work. But you've got to have it here. You need this long study. Look, I did, I don't know, 80 or 90 hours of prep. You can handle one hour of, of listening through or an hour and a half probably today. Um, to try to get this because it's not just about Mark 11. It's about prayer. It's about your relationship with God. And it's about the nature of the church. And it's about suffering and pain and how that relates to our prayer life. And isn't that important? Yeah, absolutely. So <clears throat> let's consider the immediate context. Here's the immediate context. The, the, the prayer, the whole prayer thing that Jesus is telling the disciples it was not true prior to the cross. It was true post-cross. And the big pivotal thing that's happening in the Gospel of Mark, and this is why this prayer promise comes couched in the middle of a promise about destroying the temple. The, the whole pivotal thing is that the destruction of the temple changes prayer from pray uh, to the temple, and the temple is your access to God, to Jesus is your access to God. You just pray straight to God. It's, it's moving from the old covenant to the new covenant. It's moving from the shadow to the reality. This is that pivotal shift. And so a teaching on prayer is needed. And, and here's why. Because the, we miss this because we're not Jewish and we didn't live in the first century. But the function of the temple is so central to Judaism that Judaism like doesn't even work without a temple. And I know that's a, a big statement, but let me unpack it. And I'm going to give you some quotes. The number one quote, though, is going to be from the Old Testament, which is going to be in 2 Chronicles. This passage, 2 Chronicles 6, 24 through 40, I'm going to read a big chunk of scripture here. And I'm going to highlight, I'll just kind of emphasize a few different words that Solomon is saying when he inaugurates the temple, when the temple's first built, and they're telling you the function of the temple. Right? The function of the temple, this place where the sacrifice takes place and it gives us access to God and it's God's dwelling place within the people of Israel. And I mean, it's just, it's Jesus in shadow. That's the temple, right? So this is why in the middle of saying the temple will be destroyed, he, he announces the power of personal prayer to the church. Here we go. Second Chronicles 6.24. If your people Israel are defeated before an enemy because they've sinned against you and they return to you and confess your name and pray and make supplication before you in this house, then hear from heaven and forgive the sin of your people Israel and bring them back to the land which you've given them and to their fathers. Oh, let me bring up. I want you guys to see this too. So the prayer has to happen in the house. Then hear from heaven, right, and uh, bring them back to the land. Verse 26, when the heavens are shut up and there's no rain because they've sinned against you and they pray toward this place and confess your name and turn from your sin, from their sin when you afflict them, then, then when they pray towards the temple, hear in heaven and forgive the sin of your servants and your people Israel. Teach them the good way in which they should walk and send rain on your land which you have given to your people for an inheritance. If there's famine in the land. So these are all a bunch of if-thens. He's like, if this happens and we pray to the temple and we reach out to the temple and we access you through the temple, then hear us and help us. Here's, here's another one. If there's famine in the land, if there's pestilence, if there's blight or mildew, if there's locust or grasshopper, if their enemies besiege them in, this, in the land of their cities, whatever plague or whatever sickness there is, whatever prayer or supplication is made by all by uh, any man or all your people, Israel, each knowing his own affliction and his own pain 
and spreading his hands toward this house. Then hear from heaven your dwelling place and forgive and render to each according to all his ways, whose heart you know, for you alone know the hearts of the sons of men, that they may fear you to walk in your ways as long as they live in the land in which you have given to our fathers. Also concerning the foreigner, so now let's talk about foreigners. So the Israelites can pray through the temple and get access to God. What about the foreigners? The foreigner who is not from your people, Israel, when he comes from a far country for your great namesake and your mighty hand and your outstretched arm, when they come and pray toward this house, then hear from heaven, from your dwelling place, and do according to all for which the foreigner calls to you, in order that all the peoples of the earth may know your name and fear you as do your people, Israel, and that they may know that this house which I have built is called by your name. When your people go out to battle against their enemies, by whatever, let me just highlight this, I kind of pass over, but the idea is that when God answers prayer that's pointed towards the temple, it will, it will be a way of them knowing that the temple is truly God's temple and that it's, it's really built in his name. Okay, so it's, it's considered a validation of that fact. When your people go out uh, to battle against their enemies, by whatever way you shall send them, and they pray to you toward this city which you've chosen and the house which I've built for your name. Then hear from heaven their prayer and their supplication to maintain their cause. When they sin against you, for there is no man who does not sin, and you are angry with them and deliver them to an enemy so that they take them away captive to a land far off or near. If they take thought in the land where they are taken captive and repent and make supplication to you in the land of their captivity, saying, we've sinned, we've committed iniquity, we've acted wickedly. If they return to you with all their heart and with all their soul in the land of their captivity where they have been taken captive, and pray toward their land, which you've given to their fathers, and the city, which you've chosen, and toward the house, which I've built for your name. Then hear from heaven, from your dwelling place, their prayer and supplications, and maintain their cause, and forgive your people who you have sinned against. Who have sinned against you, excuse me. <laughs> That's definitely the wrong version. Uh, now, oh my God, I pray, and this is the conclusion, let your eyes be open and your ears attentive to the prayer offered in this place. Okay, do you get the idea, and this is consistent in the Old Testament, that the, the temple is how they accessed God. Now, something happened in 70 AD. It was the destruction of the temple. This actually caused rabbis, and we have ancient records on this, to even wonder if it was even possible for Israel to pray anymore since the temple had been destroyed. Now, that in context, you realize why when Jesus predicts the destruction of the temple, he also inaugurates true receptive prayer that happens apart from the temple just because we have a relationship with God through Christ. It's very important that he gives a theology of how we might have prayer when the temple's gone. Now, let me give you some quotes. This comes from the Talmud. The Talmud, uh, which has, uh, the Talmud is not like the Bible in, the, in that it doesn't just teach this is true, that's true. It's rather the Talmud, which is a Jewish, ancient Jewish text, religious text. It often carries debates. So it'll be like, this rabbi said this, this rabbi said that. And you're trying to figure out, well, what is it teaching? And sometimes it's just recording a debate. Often whoever spoke last is the one that wins the debate and kind of carries the weight. So it's a little weird to read it, um, but it's always interesting. So the Talmud says this, Rabbi Eliezer said, from the day on which the temple was destroyed, the gates of prayer have been closed. As it says, yea, when I cry and call for help, he shutteth out my prayer. Lamentations 3.8. So Rabbi Eliezer, this, this is in, um, in the Babylonian Talmud. And he records this, this, this uh, passage in Lamentations 3.8. Now, 
context. Lamentations is written after the destruction of the first temple. And it says here, our, our prayers are not being heard by God. And so this rabbi says, look, the temple gets destroyed. God doesn't hear us anymore. That's it. We don't have access to God anymore. Rabbi Eliezer also said, I'm quoting the Talmud again, since the day the temple was destroyed, a wall of iron divides between Israel and their father in heaven. This is something we miss. The people of Israel understood at the time that the destruction of the temple was devastating to their all their theology, to their access to God. Now, the Christians, the Messianic Jews, they knew that Jesus provided the new access to God, the full and complete and total better access to God. But those who had rejected Jesus, they don't have a temple, they have nothing left. They don't have this promise of prayer through Christ that they can apply. And so that's what we get. We get the rise of rabbinic Judaism. Now, rabbinic Judaism is modern day Judaism for the most part. There's other branches, but modern day Judaism is rabbinic. What that means is the rabbis, they, they had to rework and in a sense reinvent Judaism, change it around to work without a temple. So they made up new things and changed things around to function with no temple. Yet there were some rabbis that were resisting this in the Talmud. And they're like, no, we have no prayer. Like, that's it, guys. There's, there's no solution anymore. And so now they replace sacrifices in the temple with good works and good deeds, which is actually, I think, offensive to the very concept of sacrifice. At any rate, this is a big deal. It's a big deal. It's still relevant today. This is the theological point that we Gentiles miss when we're reading our New Testament. God wasn't ending prayer when he destroyed the temple. Here's the point. He was making a new and better way to pray through Christ. You pray in his name. And Jesus talks about this a lot of times, actually, in the Bible. But one in particular is John 4, 21, where he's talking to the woman at the well. And she's asking, hey, are we supposed to worship in Jerusalem or here? And he tells her, you know, you guys don't know what you're worshiping. Obviously, Jerusalem is the place because that's where God set up his name. That's the temple. But he also adds this. Woman, believe me, an hour is coming when neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. Location won't matter. Right? Because God's going to put his spirit within you. Because guess what? Christian, you know this. You're going to be the temple. That's deep. And this is this is like totally central. This is why the promise of prayer is couched in the context of the destruction of the temple. You're the temple. You pray to God. God hears your prayers. You pray through Christ. This is what the book of Hebrews, a lot of it is all about. Um, now we're the temple. We pray directly and confidently. Jesus is my access. Jesus is my mediator. Because of Jesus Christ, I have direct relational access to God in prayer. And all I have to do is trust him. I don't need the temple. I have Jesus. I have the new temple. I have the greater and better. One commentator put it this way on this Mark passage. The Jerusalem temple is condemned and replaced by the praying community. And I think that that is very relevant and very, very true. Now, to, to show you that this, this isn't just, um, I like seeing that scripture is interwoven with these theological messages. This is kind of the unity of the Bible for those who think um, they're just a bunch of scatter books randomly written. It's, it's God inspired these writings. And when we see these same concepts subtly but powerfully taught in Mark and then more clearly explained in other passages in the New Testament, I think that's powerful. So 1 Peter 2.5, you also as living stones are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. 
you're the temple guys. The temple's been destroyed. That access to God has, has shifted over to Jesus Christ. He's the fulfillment of it. It was just a shadow all along anyways. And now you're the temple. So you have direct access. Ephesians 2, 19. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household. Having been built, right? You're, you're the household. You're his house. The house for his name. Right? That's the temple. That's temple language. Having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. Well, the cornerstone is the cornerstone of the temple in Psalm 118, which we've talked about not long ago, in whom the whole building is being fitted together. It's growing into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling of God in the spirit. Do you see, this is, this is what Jesus is giving us in Mark 11. It's this theology. It's this theology. So I, I think that this is exciting um, and it helps us understand the promise about prayer isn't just always believe and you'll get whatever you, you're believing for. That's not just it. It's about a massive theological disaster, the destruction of the temple and how Jesus is replacing and superseding it with something more, more it's just better in every way. And that our prayer to God comes directly to Christ. Now, to the simple Christian who doesn't know the background of the Old Testament and stuff, I'm basically saying, God hears your prayers. Jesus is making you into the temple. You have access to God at all times. You are to be that house of prayer. Um, powerful, powerful, beautiful stuff. Now, let me give you some more stuff on Mark 11 that I think is important before we start to branch out because we're going to have to counterpoint this promise of, um, of uh, answered prayer with Jesus in Mark 14 and his unanswered prayer. And I think that we're supposed to hold these two together to understand the full teaching on prayer. But on Mark 11, the point here um, I want to point out before we go further is that the, the person who's praying, their part is faith, but God's the one who does the miracles. Now that might not seem like a big observation, but let me, let me tell you what that means. It means that the people who say, that your words have power and they kind of act like almost like it's like some Star Trekky type, you know, like your midichlorines are firing off and stuff. Like I said, <laughs> that's how old I am. I said Star Trek and then I referenced Star Wars. Um, <laughs> that's how you know you're getting old. You can't tell the difference between Star Trek and Star Wars. At any rate, um, the uh, it's not about the power of your words. It's not about the power of my words, my ability to like speak things. So what I'm saying is, Two people, both believing with all their heart, declaring things in faith, they, they both have the same lack of power in all their words. That's There's just nothing there. All they have is their belief. And their belief is weak. Belief, simply faith, that is weak. And that's why Jesus calls it a mustard seed. Faith is small, whereas prosperity preachers often want to act like faith is bah, this massive. It's just a simple, small little thing of, I just believe you, Lord. I just believe Prayer is weak. Faith is small. God is strong. So we see this in the Mark 11 passage. Because the active and passive terms. So you have faith in God. That's, that's active. You're doing that. I'm having faith in God. Whoever says to this mountain, be taken up, cast into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes. He believes. That's what you're doing. You're just believing. It will be granted to him. So this is passive now. He's not doing it. He's not the one moving anything. He's just believing God. And then he goes on, again, an active and passive context. All things for which you pray and ask, believe that you've received them. Active, you're believing. Passive, they will be granted to you. So all I'm suggesting is that it's God's power who's doing it all. And we should highlight that. It's not the power of my words. It's not the power of my prayer. It's not the power of my faith. That's really important. 
All right, let's talk about forgiveness. In this Mark passage, we get, um, I'll just, I'm gonna focus on verses 24 and 25, or actually just verse 25. Whenever you stand praying, forgive if you have anything against anyone, so that your Father who's in heaven will also forgive you your transgressions. I think the context of this is to suggest that um, unforgiveness will hinder your prayers. Right? This is a necessity in your prayer life is that you forgive other people. And so I need to talk about this for a minute because one thing that's going to hinder the answer to your prayers and the answer to my prayers and my ultimately hinder my, my relationship with God, it's going to hurt my relationship with God, is my relationship with others involving bitterness and unforgiveness. This is kind of a big deal. Now this, this connects with the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 6 where Jesus, he says, forgive us our, teaches us to pray, forgive us our debts as we have also forgiven our debtors which assumes that I've already been forgiving even when I come to God in prayer. In um, Matthew 5.23, this is going to be a challenging thing. Maybe something you didn't expect when you, when you click this video, but this is going to be kind of a, a challenging thing, and I do want to challenge you. This should challenge you. We should take this very seriously, and I think as Christians, we, we, um, we just, you know, look, we live in a culture, and some of the things in our culture are conducive to our Christianity, but a lot of the things are not. And the general attitude of bitterness, bottling things up, um, and not seeking restoration in relationship, this is, this is not conducive to my walk with Christ. Matthew 5, 23 and 24. Therefore, if you are presenting your offering at the altar, you're coming to God. Now, you're the temple, so you're offering spiritual offerings, right? You're offering prayer, worship. When you're doing that, and you remember there that your brother has something against you. That is, he has, you've hurt him. He's got something against you. Leave your offering there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and present your offering. Don't you get this? This is saying like, every time I come to God in prayer and the Holy Spirit reminds me, which I've had this happen, there's this person I've sinned against. I should stop. Actually stop. And go and repent and seek restoration with that individual before I come to God and continue in relationship with him. That's a big deal. Why? Because God loves that person and you've sinned against them. So reconciliation, this is is personal, it's individual, and reconciliation is actually attempted before you're offering things to God. And Jesus here in Mark seems to indicate that that this is central in you getting answers to your prayers. Now we can even reinforce this more and we'll talk about marriage, (laughs) which this applies to me. Um, 1 Peter 3, 7, It says, you husbands in the same way, live with your wives in an understanding way as with someone weaker since she's a woman and show her honor as a fellow heir of the grace of life so that your prayers will not be hindered. I think this is just about women physically being weaker. Like, and and if you deny that women physically in general are weaker, then you're, you're, you're not living in reality. Um, you know, Christianity at the same time teaches that all human male and female have equal value or made in the image of God, but we're not equal in every, in every way. We're not, uh, well, I should say we're not the same in every way. Our value is always equal, but our sameness is, is ridiculous to pretend that we're the same. And, um, and this is not a political point. This is a reality point. And it's, it's here. Okay. I I have to recognize that, um, there's, there's areas in which my wife is going to be weaker, but here's the, here's the trippy thing. I need to show her honor as a fellow heir of the grace of life. See, our value is exactly the same. So that your prayers will not be hindered. Wait, if I mistreat my wife, my prayers will be hindered? My prayer to God will be impacted by my lack of forgiveness and love and compassion and grace to my wife? 
Okay, this might actually explain some unanswered prayer. And this is a big deal. Like, the Bible makes a big deal about this. I wouldn't, because as a pastor, I don't really like confronting people. I'm just like, I don't like confrontation any more than anybody else. I'm just constantly compelled by, by the truth of Christianity to be more confrontational, hopefully in a godly way. And this is an area where we need to do that and to, to get up and to learn how to, how to create reconciliation and not just cut people out of our lives. With social media, it's like we can so easily just remove this person and, and then add this person. But then we create a trail of shallow friendships that are very unfulfilling. Often the most fulfilling and best relationships are the ones that have endured through years where you've worked through problems and you've sought reconciliation when there was issues. And in marriage, you absolutely have to do this all the time. Don't isolate. Reconciliate. <laughs> to make it... I'm just looking for some alliteration, I guess. Um, so, if you're forgiving others, then... Conclusion. If you forgive other people and you're repentant of sin, I think we all understand you know, sin will block prayer. Um, unrepentant in, and have faith in God. So if you're doing those things, then you have access to God's miraculous power and you can, quote, ask anything. Thus is the positive statement in the Gospel of Mark that we're dealing with. Ask whatever you want. Yeah, you're in that place of right spirituality, forgiveness, uh, right relationship with God and others, at least as much as depends on you. Now you can ask whatever you want. So then we ask the question, okay, but what about when God says no? Right? I, I realize God can't answer prayer and, and, and if I ask believing but I've asked believing and he said no and there's times where I've really believed and he said no and I, there was no sin that I'm aware of in my heart there was no unforgiveness I'm aware of in my life what about that and here let me give you a quote from uh, Sharon Dowd's book that I think was really helpful for me here's the quote and listen carefully this is this is where it's going to shift this is the this is the missing piece of the puzzle this is why the um why I should not go down the cessationist route on Mark 11, but I also don't want to go down the Kenneth Copeland route, and I think that this shows how you can ab not abuse this passage of Scripture. Here it is. This quote from uh, Sharon Dowd's book, uh, Prayer, Power, and the Promise of Suffering, page 129. The theological function of prayer, according to 11, 22 through 25, is that prayer serves as the vehicle by means of which the God who can do the impossible meets the needs of the Christian community. It remains to be seen, however, how prayer functions when God chooses not to intervene. God's negative response to the prayer of Jesus in Gethsemane raises within the Markan text the problem of theodicy and the function of prayer when miracles are not forthcoming. Okay, this is the missing piece of the puzzle. And here's the missing piece of the puzzle, if I can summarize it for you, because I'm going to get into detail here. Mark presents this blank check kind of teaching on prayer. Now, in context, there's a lot more to it than that, which we've already covered. But still, is there anything to counterpoint this? Is there anything that's going to balance this out for times when God simply says no? And the answer is yes, and it's in the Gospel of Mark in chapter 14, when Jesus prays the following, and God says no. So here we are, Mark 14, verse 35. This is the counterpoint. This is the missing piece of the puzzle. And he went a little beyond them and fell to the ground. This is in Gethsemane, right before he was uh, betrayed and then brought before the courts and then finally crucified. And he fell to the ground and began to pray that if it were possible, the hour might pass by him. Jesus wants to avoid this suffering. And he was saying, and wants to doesn't mean he's, he's choosing to. But of course there's a desire to. Um, and he was saying, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. This is, in a nutshell, 
exactly the prayer that is anathematized by the prosperity preachers and the word of faith guys. And it's the prayer on Jesus's lips. Look, when you're telling me to not pray the way Jesus prays, something's wrong with your teaching. Mark 14 presents the perfect counterpoint and filling out, not disagreeing, but filling out the rest of the story of Mark 11. And that's what we mean. So Jesus, let me, let's, let's apply Mark 11, right? Does Jesus have unforgiveness in his heart? Well, no, of course not, right? Is there sin in his life? No, of course not. Does he have true and genuine faith, you know, towards, towards the father? Absolutely. Absolutely. Total, perfect faith. And then he, and then he asks, and now Jesus is God here, but he's, but he's standing here as, as providing an example for humans on how we interact with God. Okay. That's the point. And so Jesus has faith, no sin, no unforgiveness in his life. And he prays and he believes all things are possible for you. And then he adds this whole idea of, but yet let your will be done, Lord, not mine, Father. Excuse me. He says, Father, let your will be done, not mine. And this is exactly what I've heard over and over from the word of faith preachers never to do. That it's a prayer killer. And that praying thy will be done to God is a miracle killer. And I think this is, this is very bad. Okay, this is where you, you're wrong. If you've, um, it sounds so mean as I'm saying this. I consider co- good correction, right, a, a kindness. Okay, this is, this, consider this a kindness, I think, that you should consider it that way, which is this. If you've taught people, don't say, Lord, your will be done, not mine. If you've taught that, you've taught them to, to reject Jesus's prayer. You've also taught them to reject the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus teaches us how to pray, right? Jesus teaches you how to pray and says, God, you know, Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your will be done, right? Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So the whole premise of prayer is that God's will, not mine, is being done. So while, yes, faith is essential, God's will is a determiner that ultimately will trump all of that. Because Jesus here, he's got faith, he's got, you know, perfect prayer. And yet... The answer is no. The answer is no. And in a nutshell, what I'm saying with all this is that Jesus' prayer in the garden stands as an intentional counterpoint counterpoint to the teaching in Mark 11. It stands there under the inspiration of the Spirit that was written down by Mark um, under the intentionality of Jesus, making sure that the disciples could experience and hear and, and see him struggling through this moment so that they would learn that they have to suffer too according to God's will. That's the lesson. Faith, faith means not only I believe God for miracles. Faith means I believe God in suffering. And if you don't have both of these, you have a sub-biblical view of believing. Now, there are those who want you to be so emphasized or, you know, focused on the idea of healing and miracles that they will argue against the Gethsemane passage. And that is a problem. Faith trusts in suffering. When according to God's will, the answer to your prayer is no. There is still a different yes that's going on. Yes to God's help, right? His assistance to you, his comfort, his empowerment. Yes to God's work. You know, he's using this in the world for his glory. Yes to his glory. Yes to God working good in your life through even the tough things you go through. So those are all yeses. And we're to take Peter's attitude towards suffering without watering down the miraculous power of God working through prayer, we also add in this other element. First Peter 4.19, therefore those also who suffer according to the will of God. <laughs> Look at this phrase. Suffer according to the will of God. And what's my posture when I'm suffering according to God's will? 
is to entrust my soul to a faithful creator in doing what is right. That is, that's the deal. Suffering is part of the faithful believer's life. Um, on page 158, Dowd says the following. I thought it was very insightful. What and, and of course, she talks like a scholar, so you may find it slightly weird, but that's how they are. Um, and I'm not a scholar, but I read these guys and try to translate their language back into normal people language a little bit. Um, what makes discipleship in the marking community so difficult is not that it involves suffering, but that it involves suffering by those who participate in God's power to do the impossible. The God who wills to move the mountain does not always will to take away the cup. Those who belong to Jesus' true family do the will of God, whether it involves miracles or suffering. That is so right on. Um, the problem that Mark is dealing with, that Mark's addressing sort of behind the scenes, is you have this incredible access to God where you believe and he works miracles. And yet, there are times where you're believing and he's saying no. How do we do this? The theodicy, the term of a theodicy, it's, it's like trying to understand the problem of the suffering that's going on in the life of a believer who knows. You see, it's, it's, not, it's not just that God isn't healing me or my child or, or the situation that's going on. It's not that. The pain is knowing that he could. Do you understand? This is where I think the battle comes with believers who pray and God says no. To healing, and he does say no to healing on occasion, or maybe even more often than not. I don't know. In, in my experience, it's more often no than yes. Now, there are times where I've seen God heal. I'll talk about that a little bit later. Uh, miraculously. But but there are times when he says no, and, and it hurts. The heart, the pain of it is thinking that God could have said yes. Like, you, you, you said no, but you could have said yes. Like, you have the power. I'm believing you. You, you love me. You care about me. What, what's going on here? And to this, we have Mark 11, Mark 14. We have Jesus. We have Peter saying, those who suffer according to the will of God, here's your job. Just like you thought faith was key, key in accessing God's miraculous power, you must also believe that faith is key in dealing with suffering when God says no. If you think, I believe God for healing and he says no, do you really believe him if you don't believe him when he says no? Do I really trust him? Or was he just like a vending machine? I put the coin of faith in and I get what I want. And if I don't, I, I, I kick and punch the vending machine. Vending machines don't have wills. You just They're just input-output machines. God has a will. And we must submit to that. And that does involve our suffering. I teach on this all the time because I think that it's super-duper relevant every day to the Christian life. So this is a theodicy in Mark. Uh, an attempt to explain the problem of pain as it relates to prayer. problem of suffering. It's been a theme in Mark. Oftentimes, when when there's a high moment in the ministry of Jesus, that's the moment Jesus takes to tell people like, "And you're gonna have to take up your cross and follow me." And I'm gonna, I'm, yeah, I'm the Christ. Guess what? I'm also going to die and suffer and be betrayed and 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 then die and rise again in three days. And Peter, he stands as the guy saying, "No, Lord, don't let it happen." This is in Mark eight, right? No, no, no. You, you, this won't happen. He's rebuking Jesus about suffering because he just can't see how that could be in God's will. And then Jesus calls him Satan. And tells him he's mindful of the things of man. And I'm going to say this, that I, I do really think, um, and I, I don't want you to use this as a hammer to hit people with, but I do think it's just true that those who teach that God's will is for you to never go through suffering, pick the type of suffering, financial, um, emotional, or, or more likely they're focusing on, um, on sickness, disease. Disease is like the thing they'll probably focus on. Now, when they say it's never God's will for you to do that, they're like Peter rebuking Jesus. No, that would never happen. God forbid. And I think that they're mindful of the things of man and not the things of God. They're trying to push their will 
onto onto the Lord at that point. The word of faith teachers, they lose the context of suffering as God's will, and they can be represented by Peter when he refuses to condone suffering by God's will. And he's rebuked by Jesus as ultimately having a satanic mindset. In other words, Peter's not ruled by God's will, but by his own will. Prayer is not about me ruling God over my will. In fact, that brings us up to the next issue, which is the issue of magic. And um, the reason why I'm bringing this up is because in the first century, we, we say magic today and it's kind of complicated, right? We have like fantasy magic and then we have like actual witchcraft, which is a big deal even nowadays and Wicca and all this kind of thing. Um, but in the in the context of the first century, magic was a prominent enough issue that that you know, in, in having the Gospels written, God wants to make sure that he differentiates the truth of Christianity from the activity of witchcraft and magic and that sort of thing. So let me give you some context from the first century that will help us to understand this. And there's just one issue that I'll focus on. Earlier in Mark, we dealt with how Jesus wasn't doing uh, magic. Actually, in one of the studies in Mark, I've dealt with that. But this is a different aspect. And it's about it's about um, how magic is different than than the pious religious person. Uh, in a in a positive sense, the the magician or the witch, you know, in the first century times, the the goal of their magic tricks, of their incantations, and of their tools that they use when they cast their spells, is to force the will of the god or the deity or the gods to obey them. At least this is what they're believing, right? They're 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 deceived by demons and all that, but they're believing that they're forcing their will upon these supernatural powers, and then the powers have to obey them. Whereas in in the gospel, in Christianity, and in right religion before God. It is us submitting to the will of God and accessing his power to do what he wants. That's the purpose. Now, let me read to you some details on this that I think you'll find interesting. There's an Austrian scholar named Alphonse Barb, and he says the following, The magician forces the supernatural to accomplish what he desires and avert what he fears, whereas the religious man submits to the will of the deity. Uh, of course, this is, you know, like scholars, the way they talk, as you put this in a Christian context, you're saying, wow, okay. So if, if I'm sort of declaring that my will is the initiator and not God's will, then I'm actually moving into the realm of witchcraft contextually of the, in the first century and out of the realm of prayer, which is what Jesus is trying to get us to be in. There are several examples from this in, uh, in Dowd's book in chapter 7. And on page 139, I'll read you one of the weirdest ones. One of the most chilling passages in the literature on magic comes to us from the contemporary of the author of Mark, the Roman poet Lucian. So here, this is written at this, you know, around the same time as Mark, living at the same time as Mark. So this is very much first-century thinking about magic, uh, in the in the in the bad, not not fantasy, but in the bad sense. Here, in the account of Sextus Pompey's dealings with the witch Erichtho, Lucan informs uh, Lucian informs the readers, the reader that Thessaly, and here's the quote: Thessaly produces the poisonous plants and magical stones used for incantatory purposes by witches who wish to make the gods subservient. Moreover, the impious spells which these infamous women utter do, in fact, force the reluctant gods to pay heed. Now, here's why I bring this up. A distorted teaching on Mark 11 in prayer, it makes it so that the miracles source in my will instead of in God's will. The power of God to heal, to do wonderful things, it comes from me and not from him. I think a biblical teaching is that it comes from God and I respond. Now, another response to this, though, is where the word of faith preachers are going to say, but Mike, it's always God's will to heal. It's just always his will. And a lot of people do think this. 
I don't agree. I don't think that that's biblical, and I've given lots of examples in the Mark series of that sort of thing. But here are a couple practical things I'll mention. Um, and mainly I want to do this. I want to say all of these Word of Faith preachers, they acknowledge that sometimes it's, it's, it's in God's plan to allow the martyrdom of, say, Stephen or the, or the death of Christ, that, that it's sometimes in God's plan to allow suffering. He certainly allows us to die. Nobody's going to live eternally. We're suffering death. That's a consequence of the fall. But the Word of Faith preachers will arbitrarily draw a line between all suffering and then sickness. And they'll specifically really rail against illnesses. So if your suffering is caused by germs or viruses, then it can't happen. It's always outside of God's will. But if you have even greater suffering and it's being caused by persecution, you know, well, that may be according to God's will. And you have to say it because, I mean, First Peter, the context is you're suffering persecution according to God's will. Like, you, you, it's the most plain teaching uh, on the topic. So here are some examples, right? There's apostolic suffering. And keep in mind that the apostles were the chief amongst those who were performing miracles in the early church. They were called the signs of the apostles because not everyone was doing miracles like that. So Paul, who had these signs, he suffered physical ailments and he suffered the ongoing effects of things that he would like to pray away, the thorn in his flesh. Yeah, and I'll do a teaching on that topic one day. I know it's controversial, but some kind of physical thing he was going through. Yet he saw God's will in it. Now, I've recently taught this, but I'll just mention Timothy had regular stomach issues. Now, keep this in mind. Paul the Apostle, he would go around and heal crowds full of people. The handkerchief, right, heals people. And yet, Timothy has regular stomach issues, and Paul's not like, I'll pray for you, you'll be healed. I have faith. Or, Timothy, you have faith. Instead, he's like, drink some wine, not just water, because of your frequent stomach issues. Now, some Word of Faith people try to say that Timothy's real issue is that Timothy has nervousness, and he's socially awkward. And if he drinks wine, it helps him to relax a little bit so he can be more socially comfortable. Now, I want you to ponder that for a minute. Um, no. <laughs> no. The reason why they have to say that is because what's obvious is that Timothy had stomach problems, and the wine, it, not only water, because the, the water he was drinking was actually, uh, you know, he's a missionary, he's traveling, it's probably causing him troubles. And so he's to drink some wine to help with that. Um, Erastus, Paul's healing everybody, right? But, in, but Erastus, he says he left sick in Miletus. He just leaves him there, right? Paul heals everybody. He just leaves Erastus sick in Miletus. Epaphroditus almost died. He had a prolonged illness. He was a missionary with Paul. He had a prolonged illness and he almost died because of it. It was a prolonged illness, long enough where their slow mail service could tell other cities about it. So it was a long illness. But arbitrarily, they want to say that we can't have sickness. No, no, no. We'll, we'll talk around these passages and we'll say Christians can't have sickness, right? It's not like God sometimes does miracles and sometimes says no. It's always God's will to heal. But this is completely arbitrary, right? You can't get a cold according to God's will. He, he doesn't will for you to ever be sick. You can't have a cold. But you could have a mob of, of, of people come in who are satanically inspired, who beat the tar out of you, who stab you, who cut off limbs of your body, and that's okay. Like that can be in God's will for you, but not a cold. This is arbitrary, right? I, I'd rather be protected from persecution than from the flu, if I have a choice about this. Um, yes. So this is it's it's arbitrary. Um, all right. Now let's let's move on. Um, so so I'm just here. I'm just trying to refute the idea that it's always always God's will to heal sicknesses, but but not a bunch of other topics arbitrarily. Anyhow. Let's talk about this really important issue of, am I supposed to make myself believe things? Is that what this teaching is? Like the teaching is like, if you believe, you're going to receive. 
You don't doubt in your heart, believe that you have received it. This is a really strong teaching. And I think that the answer to this is, and um, I know this is a long study, but I think everything I'm sharing with you is very valuable. I think I've spent three weeks working on this one, <laughs> this one issue. And um, maybe I should cut this part out and put it as a separate video. But I think here's the idea. Do I have to believe and make myself believe things? And that's really the, the main and only factor, right? Like to the point where I'm even kind of convincing myself of things that I don't really think I believe. Is that what I'm supposed to be doing? Is my job to stir up belief where I don't feel like I have belief? And I'm not talking about belief in God. Yes, you need to believe in God. I'm talking about belief that God will do X, okay? I'm sick, God will heal me. I have cancer, God will heal me. I have to make myself believe this. And I think the answer is no. I think the answer is no. And here's my case as to why. First off, Jesus had a responsive ministry to God, not an initiatory ministry to the Father. Now, Jesus is God, the Father is God, but he is living an example for us so that we can humanly follow as much as possible in his footsteps. And in his example, he's not the one initiating the work of God, the work of the Father. He is the one responding to the Father. So this is in the Gospel of John in particular. It's like a theme in the Gospel of John. Maybe you've noticed it and wondered why it was there. I think it relates to the issue today. John 5.19, Therefore Jesus answered and was saying to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of himself unless it is something he sees the Father doing. Whatever the Father does, these things the Son does in like manner. So all the things that Jesus do, does, healings, miracles, healing the paralytic, that kind of thing, he is seeing somehow spiritually aware that the father's going to the father wants to do this the father's going to do this and so then he responds in John 12:49 and this applies directly to the idea that you have to just like force yourself to believe things in John 12:49 for I did not speak on my own initiative but the father himself who sent me has given me a commandment as to what to say and what to speak so again there's a, there's a there's a deep relationship between the father and the son. There, you know, the father is God, the son is God. The, the the relationship is deep and intimate, and it is it is the initiatory act of the father that the son is responding to as he walks on this earth in his humility. Another passage for this is John fifteen seven, and this is where it starts to turn into something that applies to you. Okay, I hope I'm explaining this well. I sure hope so because I think it's very important. John 15, 7, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. Look at the condition Jesus puts on prayer. Like you can ask whatever you want, but the condition is that you're abiding in me and my words are abiding in you. Why? Because when you're abiding in Christ relationally, when you're filled with the spirit, the things that you believe God will do, you believe them because God is telling you he's going to do them. That's my theory. <laughs> That's my theory. It hinges on abiding. Now, in John 15, it's about abiding. Well, John 14 and 16, it's about the promise of the Holy Spirit. This is all about your relationship, intimate relationship with God. Meaning that the thing I'm believing God for, God has told me by the Spirit he's going to do. I'm only responding. He's initiating. I'm responding. Now, the anxiety that's created in the heart of Christians, because they think they have to initiate the belief that God will do this, Right? You can't, I don't know how to initiate belief, God will do this. I can always do the God is this. God, you know, I have a relationship with God through Christ. God hears my prayer. I have access to him. He loves me. I trust him. These are things I can always have confidence in in prayer. 
but God will get me this job. Really, I don't know how to have confidence of that. And when I don't know, I don't, I can't pray that kind of prayer of faith that God will do that. I just pray, God, your will be done. Help me out here. I don't know what the plan is. Um, so faith for miracles. Here's a second point I need to give you. This is some heavy theology stuff. I hope it, and I never hear anybody teach this. Um, so I'm interested in the pushback I'll get on it, actually, to be completely frank. I do think it's very biblical. And here's my case on how you can be a, you can believe in the, in, in the miraculous work of God ongoing, responding in prayer and faith, but also believe that people aren't supposed to fabricate beliefs that are not being led by the Spirit. All right, so the second issue is this. Faith for miracles is different than saving faith. And that faith for miracles, just like what I read in John as it related to Jesus, faith for miracles is initiated by God. We actually have teaching in the New Testament that seems to indicate that you believing that God will do X is coming from God, not from you. Doesn't mean you don't have a choice because you, again, and this is, this is key. You do have a decision of whether you will trust the thing that God is revealing to you. And that's your, that's your faith moment. That's your, that's the thing. But the initiation of thinking God will do it in the first place, that's coming from the Holy Spirit. Okay, so here we go. Faith is different. Faith for miracles is different than saving faith. This is important. Otherwise, every Christian has perfect faith for miracles and should see miracles all the time. 1 Corinthians 13, 2, Paul says, um, if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but do not have love, I'm nothing. And the implication here is that Paul's saying, like, uh, yeah, you know, if you believed for all of these powerful things to happen, then that would be amazing. But if you had love, it wouldn't matter. But the implication is that not all Christians have all faith to believe for all these things. My only point here is faith for miracles is not the same as faith for salvation. Okay, so these are not the same thing. That's it. I think that's an important point. The second issue is this. The, the miracle faith, let's call it miracle faith, it's initiated by God and you are responding to it by believing what he's revealing to you. And I think we can build a case for this starting with Romans 12, 3. And this is, if this is something you've never heard before, it might take you a second to wrap your head around it. Maybe you have to watch this video seven or eight times. No, you shouldn't have to do that. If I've, if I've done my job good, maybe twice. <laughs> uh, Romans 12, 3. For through the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think. Um, is that the right verse? Oh, yes. Um, but to think so as to have sound judgment as God has allotted to each a measure of faith. Okay, so these are Christians. They're all Christians and they're all given a different measure of faith. That's interesting. Now, um, again, this is, this is different than just faith for salvation. We're talking about faith in the context of spiritual gifts and miracles. So this is coming from God. Faith is a supernatural enablement. Uh, it's a gift in a sense from God. Uh, it still involves a choice. So don't try, and Calvinists are going to try and hijack what I said there, but it still involves a free will choice. Um, and that's key. And that's why Jesus' whole, con whole teaching on prayer matters is because you have a choice to believe these things or not. But look at what it says here about prophecy. Since we have gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, the different faith given to us, each of us is to exercise them accordingly. If prophecy, according to the proportion of his faith. So that the prophet is, is the one who speaks prophecy, whether they're in the in office of a prophet or not, but they speak out prophecy. They're always doing it in response to something God has instilled in them. God gave them an awareness of the truth of something, and now they're to declare it to others. That's the spiritual gift of prophecy. Now, this is the opposite of what, say, Bethel Church has been teaching people, which is that they can they can make prophecy happen, right? They could just make they could just walk up to someone and just start talking, 
and and just trust that whatever they say is going to going to be true because they have like somehow the mind of a prophet or something. But this is actually different than scripture. Scripture's saying God initiates this unless you have this from God, this awareness that he is doing this thing. Then you trust that because you're in that you're believing God and you proclaim it. So you're responding. God gives you this faith in a sense in 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 a yeah, it's probably kind of complicated to unpack it all, but he gives you, simplistically, he gives you faith. You're responding by saying, okay, I'm going to believe the thing that you're revealing to me, Lord, and I'm going to pray that. Now, this may be exactly how miracles work. I think it is, actually, and it fits my own life. There's been times where I've prayed for people, and it's not been many times, but there's been a handful of times where I prayed for people. Someone's like, um, I got this report. They found cancer in my body. This this happened in our Sunday night service years ago. Someone says they they you know they found cancer in my body. And I prayed over this man, and I just f- had this awareness. Okay, maybe some people are going to think I'm, I'm weird, but look, either you have a, either a real relationship with God or I'm a weirdo, one or the other. <laughs> well, maybe, maybe both. At any rate, um, I really just sensed from the Lord that he was going to heal this man, that this was going to be answered, that his answer was going to be yes. And that did change my faith while I was praying. And the funny thing is, is I didn't say, like, be healed in Jesus. I didn't. I just prayed like normal. Like, Lord, we just pray that you heal him. I just pray like normal because I think I just have to have mustard seed. I don't have to like be weird. And God healed him. He came back. Now I've had this happen a few times where there's times where I just, there's a sense in my spirit that God's going to heal somebody and it's been accurate. Okay. It's been reliably accurate. Now, if you're not reliably accurate, you're mistaking your heart for God's spirit and you need to learn the difference. How? I can't tell you how. You need to learn by going, well, that wasn't the Lord. So now I know. But that means it's initiated by God. That, that's what this whole idea is. It, it's, a, it's a given by God. It's initiated by him. And then I respond, which means I don't have to pretend to believe things or make myself believe things. God will do X when I don't know if God's going to do that. I know God is good. I know God hears me. I'm going to pray about that. I'm going to pray according to that. Unless the Holy Spirit reveals to me God will do X. I don't need to pretend that I'm convinced he will. Please take the anxiety out of your prayer. Okay, Acts chapter 14, verse 8. I think gives us an example of this in the book of Acts. Check this out. At Lystra, a man was sitting who had no strength in his feet, lame from his mother's womb, who had never walked. This man was listening to Paul as he spoke, who when he'd fixed his gaze on him and had seen that he had faith to be made well, said with a loud voice, stand upright on your feet. And he leaped up and began to walk. Look at how this plays out in Paul's ministry. Paul's teaching, there's a guy there who's crippled. I mean, you know, if you have a choice, if, if, if you can just have faith and make a miracle happen, right? Then, then why didn't Paul just go, hey, be healed. And that's a great way to draw attention for a sermon, right? Be healed. And now that I got your attention, I'm going to tell you about God. That's a fantastic way to approach things. But no, Paul doesn't do anything until he sees that the man has faith to be made well. Well, what does it mean to see that the man has faith? I don't think Paul did this through natural human ability. It's not like you can look at somebody and go, I see that you have enough faith and proper faith in order to be healed today. I, I don't have any natural ability to do that. Paul's responding to the work of the Holy Spirit. And this is the, the whole case, right? Jesus, he's, his, his work of miracles, it's initiated by the Father. He tells us that our answered prayer is contingent on us abiding in him. And that's probably partially because we must respond to God revealing that he wants to heal someone by believing that he will heal them. That's the deal. All the anxiety is gone. It's just about faith now. 
So we get this, ask anything according, uh, you know, according to faith. Well, it's got to be initiated by God. It was initiated by God in, in the, the Father in the relationship with, with the Father and the Son. And it's said to depend upon our abiding. And we see an example here, um, Paul the Apostle responding that way. Yet there's many times where he doesn't heal people. What could possibly explain this? Is Paul's faith faltering? No, it's, it's just the will of God. Which is why First John 5.14, it tells us this is the confidence we have before him. That if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And I don't know that God's will is never for anyone to have a cold. I don't know that. I don't believe that. I think it's arbitrary and weird. But God does heal. And and prayer offered in faith to God is powerful. And we need to not water this down. We're not like, this is why no one will ever get healed. Like this, of course not. That's not, that's not the biblical teaching. We're just saying that, like, let me give you another example, okay? Here's another example. We can see this in scripture. James 5.15 is one of the prayer passages that's used, that should be used, about God healing in prayer. And the prayer offered in faith will restore the one who's sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he's committed sins, they will be forgiven him. The prayer offered in faith will restore the one who's sick. Now, on my theory, my theological understanding, is that that faith is a gift of, is a gift of God. I'm responding by believing what God's revealing. Okay, so in other words, this is, this is in the context of verse 15, is when it's God's will to heal... You'll just believe and God will heal them, guaranteed. Absolutely. But does James limit this to God's will in the book of James? And the answer is yes. One chapter back, James 4.15, he rebukes people for having business plans, <laughs> business plans, um, and not submitting to God's will. He doesn't even want you planning your next quarterly cycle without submitting to God's will. So in verse 15, he says, instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. And it's arrogance to just boast that you just know what God's will is when you don't. Ah, that's the counterpoint. That's the balance. Faith is initiated by God. God's will is not always known to me. I'll submit to it. And and then uh, if he's initiating it, it will absolutely happen. Another passage that speaks to this is 1 Corinthians 12. And this is in verse 8. 1 Corinthians 12, 8. Here's another one that helps bring this stuff together. For the one who is given the word... For to one is given the word of wisdom through the spirit, right? It's a gift of the spirit. And to another, the word of knowledge, according to the same spirit. To another, faith by the same spirit. And to another, gifts of healings by the one spirit. There's a variety. These, these things are based upon the initiation of God, not the initiation of my belief. What? Right. Your belief is, is the weak link in the chain. If God wants to heal somebody, he shows you he's going to heal them, but you don't choose to trust him in that moment. Yes, that's going to be a, a failed attempt. Uh, and to another, the effecting of miracles and to another prophecy and to another, the distinguishing of spirits and to another various kinds of tongues, to another interpretation of tongues. And then here's key. But one in the same spirit works all these things, distributing to each one individually, just as he wills. He wills. Miracles are based on his will. And it's not given to everybody. It's depending on the will of God in the particular moment. And I'm, I mean, I like that because I want the will of God in my life. So, um, oh, I was, I was showing you, I was showing you all these wonderful things in first Corinthians and you missed it because I didn't show it to you. So the conclusion is the healing is going to happen if God wills, which you will know by the revelation of the Holy Spirit in your life, because I'm charismatic. And there is a human choice to respond to this. And that's the encouragement of Mark 11, that you believe God when he is 
inspiring you that he's going to do something, that you trust him for it. That's what Mark 11 is teaching. Here's the contextual conclusions. Let me, let me wind this all down. Uh, Mark is about prayer's function in the new covenant with the old temple gone and the new temple is the church and we have access to God through, through faith in Christ. And this is the simplest, most overlooked thing. We're just saying that prayer works, that prayer is real and that you just need Jesus for your prayers to be heard by God. That it's based upon your forgiveness by God and of course will be hindered by sin, your unforgiveness of others um, or a lack of trusting in God. It's also about having faith in the sense of not works, right? You, you don't earn the things. You're not doing anything effort-wise to give to make God respond to you or to earn his favor. It's just believing in him that's required. And so you're not working for it. It's all by grace. So that all his miracles and works are done by God's grace. And that real faith, real faith, this brings in Mark 14 as well. Real faith is believing. Believing when the answer is no. Real faith is believing when the answer is no. And that God's will for your life does involve temporary suffering. And can I say this? Like maybe you're listening to this and you've been influenced by Kenneth Copeland or influenced by those who are teaching that if you just believed enough, you would be healed. And you've been trying to convince yourself that God's going to heal you. And I'm just saying like that, I think that that convincing should come from the Holy Spirit and not from you and not from Kenneth Copeland. And one of the hardest pills to swallow, and it is hard. I've talked to a family member who has chronic issues and I asked him one time, I, and I thought it was important. I just said, what if God decides not to heal you? What if it's God's will for this to continue and he's going to use it in your life? And, and I mean, as I tried to give these pastoral encouragements, biblical encouragements, the path was cut off. Because while this person wants very much to believe to be healed, there is almost no faith for suffering. And that, I would say, is the harder path of faith. It's easier to believe God for healing than it is to believe when you know he could and he has said no. Jesus gives us the example of trusting in the midst of anguish and suffering that you that you don't understand or that you can't explain that is just simply according to God's will for whatever reason he has. You, you fall back on who he is and you say, Lord, I trust you. I trust your goodness and I'm resting in you. So that with healing or not healing, faith is the key. Faith is the key. I hope that this has been helpful. Um, I, I'm trying not to water anything down or hold anything back. I think that what I've given is a thoughtful and thorough explanation of these of these issues. And if you guys have questions or thoughts, please put them in the comments. And I'm going to try as much as I can. I try to watch the comments and be aware of how these things are impacting you guys. Um, other than that, um, I will. Uh, weird note to end on. I'm going to end on prayer actually, but. I will offer a, a video later this week about my new logo because you guys presented a bunch of new logo ideas for Bible Thinker and I have picked one and I'm going to present it later this week. And then Friday we'll do the Q&A, 1 p.m. Pacific time, answering your questions. Maybe there'll be questions about today's video. I'm welcome to receive anything you guys have to say. But let's close in prayer. Let's close in prayer. Father, it's all really about not just believing you'll do things, but about believing you. Believing in your character, believing in your goodness, believing in your love and trusting in your sovereignty, and desiring your will above all else. We absolutely pray for healing in our lives, for help where we're suffering and struggling, but we also pray your will be done. And if you reveal to us that you are going to heal, then Lord, it's our job to trust you, that you in fact will do that. But when we're in the dark and we don't know what the the plan is, or we even know that your plan is is, is to say no to something,
then it is not time to stop believing, but it's time to start trusting you for suffering. Lord, help us with this because this is a massive issue. It was a massive issue for the, uh, the people reading the Gospel of Mark initially. It's a massive issue for us today. Let us be people who really believe, not just for miracles, but for suffering. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. All right, thank you all, and Lord bless you.